Welcome to the Aroma of Christ podcast, brothers and sisters in Christ. I am Ryan Brown, the pastor of the Fostoria Baptist Church, and the hope behind this podcast is to do nothing in any way to replace regular gathering among God's people. It is for the sake of mutual encouragement of one another through the singing and preaching ministry that we gather. But if you do happen to miss a week and want to keep up in Matthew, or if you want to re-listen to a sermon because it was particularly impactful or particularly confusing, this podcast is available to you. And so we continue on the Aroma of Christ sermons from the pulpit of Fostoria Baptist Church. Our scripture reading this morning was Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. And so it's a uh, beginning of the promises to Abraham. and talk about how all the families of the earth will be blessed in him. Verse 7 talks about how it will come to his seed. The word seed could be singular or plural. It could refer to the nation. And ultimately it refers to one particular person, as we will see throughout the sermon today. But the covenant and promise begins like this. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Well, good morning again. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 49. Today we'll be looking at verses 8 through 12. This Christmas Eve, instead of continuing on in Matthew and beginning the discourse on the last days. We'll be looking at an early prophecy of the coming king. At this point, we have reason to expect an offspring, a seed of Eve, is going to crush the head of the snake. And we also have reason to believe and expect that there's a seed of Abraham. He's going to be a blessing to all nations. And we're looking at Abraham's uh, grandson, Jacob. The last words and blessings that he gives to his 12 sons. It's written like a poem. And it bears some similarities to two other poems within what Moses wrote Numbers 24 and Deuteronomy 32 to 33, making it seem as being the first of three interpretive poems to make sense of the book of Moses as a whole. We jump in to what Jacob says about Judah in particular. Genesis 49, verses 8 to 12. Judah... Thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, 
Thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion and as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Binding his foal unto the vine, and his ass's colt unto the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk. Father God, we ask today that you would grant us hope and confidence that as we think through why Christmas is such a season of hope and joy, that we'd be reminded that it's not cheap frivolous. It's bought with precious blood. And it's part of your plan from before the foundation of the world. Guide us, Lord, here today. And we thank you, Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's fitting that in the Northern Hemisphere, Christmas time comes during the darkest time of the year. This Thursday was for us the time with the least amount of sunlight. It's dark outside, but we have so much joy and excitement satisfied around the Christmas time. And it even calls back to to what the choir reminded us from the book of Isaiah, out of the darkness came a great light. As we read in John 1 this morning, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. If we stop we sometimes don't even have to stop. If we think, it's pretty clear there is a lot of darkness around us. During our time of prayer requests this morning, we mentioned Jean coming down with COVID. Around Christmas time again, canceling her Christmas plans. Fern is struggling with her health, may not be able to be around family. Cindy's father is in a hospital rather than at home. Mike and Sharon have two people they're really close to who may die before Christmas Day. That doesn't take into consideration the fact that there are people who are always in nursing homes at this time of year. People who are grieving the fact that they remember celebrating these times with their loved ones who have now gone on. People die. 
People see death creep in to the life that we live. And we even can carry around darkness within our own hearts. Perhaps we could have that directly and very dramatically in terms of seeing people addicted to any number of things. The big ones, drugs and alcohol, but even the smaller ones, food, video games. Other problems of sin <coughs> that <coughs> comes into our play. Selfishness. Lying. We see and feel the darkness. And we want to see the great light. Sometimes it's hard to find the hope of that great light. Their eyes on the darkness. The passage we're looking at today in Genesis 49 comes in the middle, or near the end, rather, of the last section of Genesis. Genesis 37 through 50, commonly thought to be the Joseph narratives. And the key verse of the Joseph narratives is Genesis 50:20. can turn over and look there. But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive. Joseph's life certainly had a lot of darkness. His brothers wanted to kill him. His brothers put him into a pit, and Judah has the idea to sell him into slavery instead. So he goes down into Egypt. And as he's serving, he's falsely accused of rape. He gets put into prison. And even after he was told that there'd be a good word said for him, there he remains. But that's where he needed to be be able to point out that there's a famine coming. And if you don't prepare food now, you won't have food then. And that doesn't just save Egypt. That saves the budding nation of Israel. As his brothers come back and receive food from this stranger, They meant it unto evil, but God meant it unto good to save much people alive. But as we look into Genesis 49 today, I wonder what you would think if I told you that from a whole Bible perspective, the most important human person in Genesis 37 to 50 is not Joseph. 
If I actually told you that very subtly, Moses has been developing a different human person to be the most important one for all of Genesis 37 through 50. And that person is Judah. He showed leadership among his brothers in a bad way, in actually telling and getting uh, Joseph sold rather than killed. He showed, uh, he, there's an entire chapter where Joseph isn't there, and it's all about Judah and his seed. And then when it was the second time to go to Egypt, J Jacob agreed to send them and send his dear son Benjamin, because Judah said, I will secure him. I will be a pledge and it was Judah's act of willingly submitting to be a substitute for Benjamin's sake that caused Joseph to take off his mask, figuratively speaking, and say, I am your brother. I am the one you've been fought for. And all of that subtle development comes into place and comes to a climax in these words, Jacob says to Judah. It shows us that the blessing of Abraham comes through Judah's royal seed. It ultimately shows that Judah's seed that will be a king is the one who, like Joseph, will bring it about to save many people alive, though evil things are in fact done to him. We're looking at these verses in three groups, three stanzas, if you will, to amount for the fact that it is poetry. And it begins in verses 8 to 9 with the lion's victory. Judah. Thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's well. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion and as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? Verse 8 has three lines within it and forms a little bit of a sandwich. We begin by saying, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Judah is presented as being lifted above the others of Jacob's sons. He is the one who is going to be praised by his brothers, lifted up, exalted. If you're familiar with the Joseph narratives, you'll find that within the actual narrative, it was Joseph who received such a dream. And it was Joseph whose dreams then came to reality. Joseph had his brothers bowing down to him as he was second in command in Egypt. 
But now what is true of Joseph is actually going to be true of Judah. And the brethren are going to praise him. He will be first among the brothers. The language is significant for other reasons as well. Because it comes back and calls back to Genesis chapter 27. Genesis chapter 27 is famous for Jacob stealing the birthrights and blessing from Esau. And in that blessing where Isaac takes the blessing of Abraham and applies it to Jacob, the very words of your brothers shall praise you are used within it. The whole blessing is Genesis 27, 27 through 29. And he, being Isaac, came near and kissed him, that's Jacob, and he smelled the smell of his raiment and blessed him and said, See the smell of my sons as the smell of a sea field which the Lord hath blessed. Therefore God give thee of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of corn and wine. Mark those words as well. Remember them for later on. Part of the blessing is plenty of corn and wine. Let people serve thee, and nations bow down to thee. Be Lord over thy brethren, and let thy mother's son bow down to thee. Cursed be everyone that curseth thee, and blessed be he that blessed thee. Back in Genesis 49, in the middle of the sandwich, is a comment about the hand being on the neck of the enemies. Sign of victory. It's an image of certain victory. The enemies don't have much chance against his fighting power. His hand is even now upon their neck, ready to deal the final blow. And so seemingly because of that, Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. He's exalted above because he is victorious. Judah, like Jacob, receives praise from his brothers because he conquers. And then we get the even more provocative image in verse 9. Judah's victory, Judah's conquering that of a lion. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. She stooped down, couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? Here is Judah being compared to a strong lion. Now it's interesting to me, when the devil is called a lion, he's called a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But here as we look at this first image of the lion of Judah, he's found his prey. 
He's come back from the prey. He's either guarding that prey or has already eaten it and taken up its strength. But he's gone on the hunt. He's had success in the hunt. And he's lying after the hunt, victorious with his prey beside him or in him. And then the question is made, this lion at this strength, are you going to wake him up? Who would dare to stir him? Who would dare to confront him and threaten him as he sits with his prey, lies down victorious? Could be a death sentence to go up to the lion and say, hey, time to wake up. Who would dare threaten the lion of Judah? Who would dare rouse him up? That's the victory of the coming one from Judah. From the lion's victory comes then the lion's authority in verse 10. Lion's authority in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. Until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. The scepter is normally associated with kings. And this staff would be as well, or as the King James has it as lawgiver. The Hebrew word has to do with having the authority to write laws. It's often used in parallel with scepters, such that it came to be known as a staff. A staff one would show to say, we then have the authority to write laws. But these two lines together make it clear that a king will come from Judah. And indeed, the kingly authority is not to depart from Judah, not to depart from between his feet, but from his offspring. There's a kingly line. And we can see this confirmed in a couple different places. If you would listen to Numbers chapter 24. Numbers chapter 24 first starts talking about some individual person. Verses 8 and 9, God brought him forth out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. He shall eat up the nations, his enemies, and shall break their bones and pierce them through with his arrows. He couched. He lay down as a lion. And as a great lion, who shall stir him up? Blessed is he that blesseth thee, and cursed is he that curseth thee. So here is Balaam. He's giving his oracle. As he's giving his speech and prophecy, he directly quotes from Genesis 49. And also from the Abrahamic blessing. 
Cursed is the one who curses thee, and blessed is the one who blesses thee. Then in verse 17, he says, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Sheth. Here he sees a star and a scepter coming out of Israel. He sees the same king he envisioned in verse 9. And that king, that king is going to smite the corners. Or perhaps we could say the corners of the head or the forehead of Moab. There's a seed of the woman crushing the head of the snake. There's a king of Judah, compare, king of Jacob compared to a lion who's going to crush the forehead of Moab. And later on, the Lord will promise to David that his hesed will not depart. His covenant loyalty will not depart from him such that he will reign perpetually. He will reign forever. There's a king there's a king coming from Judah, not departing until Shiloh come. Genesis 49.10. We're not going to go into all of the details, but there are at least four interpretive options for what the word Shiloh is supposed to mean. It could be seen simply as Shiloh, and a proper name, that a, a proper title, that eventually comes to be a messianic title. It could mean his uh, ruler, saying that there will come a ruler from Judah. That ruler would ultimately be messianic as well, since we're looking at the fact that until the, the, that the scepter will depart from Judah when another one comes. Could be tribute, which would fit well with the next line, or in my particular preference, it could mean the one to whom it belongs, which would be reference to the fact that the kingship and reign ultimately does belong to the Lord, ultimately belongs to God the Son. But regardless of which suggestion we come to, they all amount to similar things. As one commentator puts it, Every suggestion amounts to regarding it as a prediction of the Davidic Empire, in which many nations would obey the king from Judah. And this king was to be a forerunner of the son of David, whom all nations would submit. When this one to whom it belongs comes, unto him shall be the gathering of the people. Unto him will be the obedience of the nations. The word in Hebrew is a word that means people or nation. And it's in the plural. Now the plural of people isn't people. The plural of people is peoples. If verse 8 
was talking about how Judah's brethren would praise him. Verse 10 says that all peoples, all nations will flock to him. All peoples come to acknowledge his reign and authority. His kingdom isn't going to know geographical boundaries. It'll keep going. That's not the only boundaries that are meant. It's not the only lack of boundaries this kingdom has. As we move into verses 11 to 12, and the lion's prosperity, see that it doesn't really know much in terms of limits on abundance, on prosperity. Binding his foal unto the vine, and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk. Verse 11 begins by talking about this foal, or this ass's colt, this young donkey. It's going to be bound unto not just a vine, but a choice vine. One of the best lines. And it's certainly an odd image. If we look up a little bit about donkeys and their diet, we'll find out that they eat just about anything. But grapes are a particularly healthy thing for them to eat. So you take this donkey and you're binding him to this vine where you can just munch away at the best of your fruit as it's coming from the choice vine. Why are we not worried about the donkey eating those grapes? Why is a vine being used for something so commonplace as a hitching post for a donkey? And the point seems to be made, as we, especially as we keep going, that the donkey can eat the grapes all he wants because there's plenty of them to go around. There's no possibility of there being a lack. And why can the vine be used for commonplace, ordinary things? Because there are other vines too. It's plentiful. Why could Solomon... Make shields out of gold. Because he had plenty of gold to go around. How can the streets of heaven be paved with gold? Because there's plenty and abundance. That point of abundance continues. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. We're still in this aspect of imagery of vine and grapes and wine, and it's still a very odd image. But it's almost as if we're washing our clothes 
where this king is washing his clothes with wine because wine is as plentiful as water. Because as was promised in what we read in Genesis 29, there was plenty of corn and wine. Maybe it's, well, maybe it's not to no purpose. Now when John's recording his signs, the first one he records is at a wedding in Cana where water gets turned into wine. There's a, a lack of wine at the wedding, and Jesus provides what is said to be the best wine by transferring that water and making it wine. His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk. eyes are glistening and his teeth are white from milk as if instead of washing them with water he's washed them with the abundance of milk that is there. There's no lack, there's no question, there's much that this king has. Now, if you've followed some of the pictures I've given and references I've made, you might notice a picture emerging. This royal figure, this Lion King of Judah, is used to describe, is used in imagery that is used to describe the seed of Abraham and the seed of Jacob. Numbers 24 connects this king to the seed of the woman crushing the head of the snake. And even passages like 2 Samuel 7, look at David's throne, and David not having the Lord's mercy depart from him as being related to a lion of Judah. And so what we have here is this lion king of Judah is part of an expanding portrait of the seed of the woman, spent to redenize the world. And this Lion King of Judah is another part of the ever-expanding portrait of what will ultimately be known as the Messianic hope. This Lion King of Judah is part of the expanding portrait of the Christ, the son of David, who the New Testament is able to identify correctly as Jesus of Nazareth. Let's think back to where we started. Let's think back to the questions of darkness that sometimes plague us. Yes, we have sickness and death. Yes, we have the press of our own sinfulness. Yes, we have all of this darkness coming in, but the light that shines in the darkness is the light of the birth, and ultimately, the work of death and resurrection of this great lion king. The hope of Christmas that we have the lion king of Judah on our side. 
then indeed he died in order to bring us to himself. We have the Lion King of Judah who conquers, whose hand is already upon the neck of the enemies, who is a lion coming back from the prey who no one would dare threaten. Don't think that lion is threatened by the darkness of our sin, by the darkness of our sicknesses, by the darkness of our sadnesses. He's conquered sin, death, and the devil. He conquered them by dying, by taking away the sting of death, by bearing the punishment for our sins. He's conquered. He's not to be threatened. No matter what ails us, he is stronger. And we have the Lion of Judah whose scepter will not depart from him, who asked for the nations as his inheritance and has received it. We have the Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ, who rules the world with an iron scepter. No matter what situation threatens us, it's never outside the control of the Lion of Judah. And we have the Lion of Judah, who in his death prepared a place for us, a place ultimately of abundance of blessings. Blessings we taste of now in part that we receive full later on. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So says Ephesians 1, Gene's favorite Bible passage. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has predestined us in love, known us and chosen us according to the counsel of his will. We have a blessing now. We know him. We have his comfort and his presence. But we have an inheritance of being with him forever. We have the Lion of Judah on our side, whose abundance that he gives us and will give us makes any suffering we have be but light and momentary affliction. Whatever suffering we have, he has more blessing. He himself is more blessing. I can't presume that everyone in this room has the son of David, this lion on our side. There's a warning and an offer in this text. He's a lion who would dare rouse him. Who would dare come to the end of your days and not have come to him and so instead still be his enemy? My Jesus is perfectly holy. 
he can't look on the sin that we do so easily. He can't look on the darkness of our lying, cheating, stealing, selfishness. He can't look on the lying of our angry thoughts, bitterness. He can't look upon that and just say it's no big deal. It has to be punished. And he took the punishment himself. But for those who won't receive him and the punishment he has taken, he will certainly be like a lion, ready to devour, ready to judge, ready to send to hell, fire, and torment. But to those of us who do come to him, he has made it to be that we don't have to do any magical thing. We don't have to fork our way to something else. We simply have to accept him. Unto him shall the gathering of the peoples be. Unto him shall the obedience of the peoples be. We celebrate at Christmas that Jesus was born. But he wasn't born just to be born. He was born to die. He took upon human nature so that in that human nature, he might bear the suffering and punishment for human sin. And rising again, he offers it to us if we simply turn and believe. Man intended it for evil, to put him to death, to crucify him, to shame him, to get rid of a troublemaker, but God intended it for good. To bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Turn to him. Come, come and hear. Come and receive him. Don't leave this building here today without taking someone by the side and saying, Hey, tell me more about this Jesus. And how, how he can save me. How I can have him on my side. So whatever darkness hits, out of that darkness has come a great light. Father God, we thank you for sending your son. And we thank you for showing us that it was to happen. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us hope, hope to fight against our sin, knowing that the Lion of Judah is on our side, hope in the midst of our difficulties, knowing that the Lion of Judah has abundance. And indeed, right now in this prayer, we experience that abundance precisely because we get to be with you into talking to you into your throne room unashamed. Father, thank you for that blessing. And lead us never to take it for granted. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, Sermons from the Pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things?